The story is said of a farmer who spent one lazy afternoon on a beautiful spring day. Instead of working, he lay on his field just gazing into the sky. But as he was gazing, he quickly sat up when he noticed that the clouds had formed a peculiar shape. The first cloud looked like the letter P. And a moment later, he saw another cloud that looked like the letter C. Immediately, the farmer discerned for himself that something beyond the ordinary was happening. God was speaking to him. God was calling him to the ministry. You see, to him, PC undoubtedly stood for preach Christ. So he went out, sold his farm equipment, sold his farm, and he decided he was going to become a preacher. The only problem, he was terrible at it. So finally, he decided to get some advice from pastors who had been in the ministry for a while. So he's sitting with them at the, at the table, and they ask him, brother, tell us how you were called to this ministry. And so the man responded with a story about lying on the fields one spring and seeing the letters PCs spelled out in the clouds overhead. And he told them that he discerned that this must be a message from God himself. And so he got up, sold his farm, became a preacher. A few minutes of silence went by, and an old pastor cleared his throat and said, Young man, I believe that you saw the letters PC in the clouds. And I believe that this was a message directly from God. However, did it occur to you that what he was trying to say to you on that fine spring, spring day, while you were laying on your back instead of working on your field, was plant corn? <laughs> See, God has a plan for each of us. He communicates it to us in such incredible ways. He has a plan for our families. He has a plan for our communities. He has a plan for our nation. He has a plan for humanity, humanity as a whole. Last week, if you were here, we talked about God's love, his never-ending love, his love and his plan that we can never be separated from. We talked about how there is nothing in all of creation that can come between you and, uh, you and the love of God, from me and the love of God. Even when circumstances are overwhelming, there's a love that holds us dearly. He ends, Paul ends this previous section with a crescendo of confidence. He's writing with absolute certainty in Romans chapter 8, verse 38 and 39. He says, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor power, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul's going to lens to assure his audience that nothing can separate them from the love of God. This is not some abstract idea. Some faint fantasy. Instead, it is a foundation on which we build our lives. It is the foundation on which our faith stands. But there are moments in our lives, in those of our family, when we experience the troubles of life, 
that we ask a slightly different question than the ones that we asked last week. Last week we said, we know what we know, we know what we experience, but sometimes it doesn't line up. How do we reconcile it? And we said, God's changing our perspective to see that his plans, his love for us does not just end here, but it goes all the way into eternity. But today we are asking a slightly question. When we are, when we are faced with such trials, when we are faced with, with, be, with things that we cannot handle, when we are overwhelmed, when the waves are too high, the storm is so strong, we're asking a question. Do all things happen for a reason? Is there rhyme or reason? Is there, is there a method to the madness that we call our lives? On July 31st, this last Sunday, around 11.30, the Pauls family, some of you may have heard of, you may have read of them. They were driving from Minneapolis to Colorado. Jameson and Catherine, they're both 29, husband and wife, they were, they were passing through Nebraska with three of their little children, Esther, age three, Violet, just 23 months, and Calvin, two months old. They were driving through a construction zone when a semi rammed into their vehicle and killed all five of them instantly. There was another person involved in the wreck. Six people in one instant, gone. You see, the Pauls family, they were actually on their way. They were making their final preparations. They were training to become missionaries to Japan. This event that they were going to in Colorado was their last step before they moved to Japan in October. When faced with a tragedy like the Paul's family faced and the community around them, there's a question that we ask. Is there a meaning to what we're enduring? Is there someone in control Why does it seem like everything is out of sorts? Why does it seem like we have no control over life? Why does it seem like we have no control over our situations? Is there someone in control? When our lives like a runaway train, out of control, it seems. Is there someone at the wheel? Is there someone who has control. For generations in the church, even last week, we talked about how God loves us and has a plan for us. We were reminded from Romans chapter 8, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. These are the words of Paul. And he's assuring us that there is a process. God has a plan for us. The problem we face, however, is when we experience pain, injustice. We, f- we experience setbacks, disappointments, inequities, unfairness. When we experience a loss of family, a loss of identity, a loss of dignity in this life, we question who is in control. 
When someone close to you and I passes away, far too young, when we experience loneliness, when we lose a job, someone close to you hurts you so badly, you ask that question, do my circumstances have any purpose behind it? Is my life random, as many would believe? Is there a pattern or a purpose behind what we experience? Is there something that drives us? Does my life fit into a bigger picture or am I it? When life is out of sorts, who is in control? The question, can we remain convinced of God's eternal plan for us in spite of life's difficulties is one that Paul is going to address in this chapter. Today we'll be looking at chapter 9 where Paul's dealing with this very topic. Let's turn to Romans chapter 9 and I'll be reading from verses 1 through 5. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have a great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I might suffer a curse and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to my flesh. They're Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs from, from their race according to the flesh is Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. There are moments in each of our lives, and Paul's going to remind us of this, that sometimes it feels like there's nobody in control. That all those promises God makes to us in the word, they have failed. There will be moments in our lives, if you have not encountered them already, there will be moments where we feel this way. Paul ends the previous chapter with an absolute confidence in God's unfailing love promised to all humanity. But here he's beginning this new section, this new passage in utter anguish. You see, this anguish is not manufactured. It is strong. It is intense. He is crying out. He's saying, I wish I could tell you how strong it is. He's crying out, believe me, believe me. I'm not lying to you. Paul writes like that when he is trying to drive a point home. He is in anguish. So what is he in anguish over? Paul is in anguish over his own people. The Israelites, the Jews, they're separated from Christ. They're cursed and cut off from Christ. He's so much in anguish that he's saying, I wish I could take their place. I wish I could be the one under the curse. I wish I could be the one separated from Christ so that they would come to know him. But wait a moment. Did we not talk about extensively last week that nothing could separate us from the love of God? So what is Paul talking? He just got done in the last section saying there's nothing that can come between us. And now he's saying they are separate from God. He says they're Israelites. And he's listing all these benefits, all these, the, these uh, favors that they have received. He's talking about Israel and he says they had it all. God from the beginning calls Israel to be his own people. 
They were chosen out of the many nations. Paul writes that all the blessings that he talked about in the previous chapters were that belonged to them. From the beginning, God favored the Israelites incredibly. He calls Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob and all the patriarchs that they hold on to. This is their, 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 their glory. This is who they are. In, every, in other words, they had everything that they needed. In the last few weeks, we talked about how God gave Israel the law. But the law was lacking. The law demanded that to please God, one had to honor every aspect of the law. The Ten Commandments, the hundreds of other commandments that kind of fit all into this one big commandment, the law. Paul's Paul's basically saying to honor God, to please God, you had to keep each and every one of them. It's like walking around every day with a checklist of, of, of 400 different laws that you had to keep. And if you broke one, you displeased God. He's saying it was, it's impossible. There had to be something better than this. And so comes Christ. Paul's saying the Israelites were then given Christ who came to redeem them. But something happens. He comes out of their own race. He comes out of the lineage. He comes out of the lineage of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He is one of their own. But the Jews rejected him. They wanted nothing to do with him. In fact, they even went to lens and crucified him. They separated themselves from Christ. God calls to them. God reaches out to them. But they do not respond. Paul says, and so they are accursed and cut off from Christ. To please God, one has to accept the sacrifice that was carried out through Jesus Christ. There is no work that you can do. There is nothing that you can, that you can fabricate. There is no state of existence that you can get to, to get to God. The only way to God is through the, for, the work that was accomplished on that cross. Jesus left, left his glories about. He came onto this earth. He became human just like you and me. And he died on that cross so that our sins and our punishment would be on him. And on the third day he was risen. And Paul is saying only through this Christ can you, be, can you please God. God. But the Jews wanted nothing to do with it. The Jews refused to accept, the, accept Christ as their Messiah or as the one to whom the, the law was pointing to, saying, We're, The law is incomplete, but there's one who will bring all things to completion. They saw the way to God was not through Christ, but instead through their own works. Because they rejected Christ, Paul counts them as accursed and cut off from Christ. But the question I want to answer, I want to deal with today, is did God's promises to Israel fail? Did God become a liar when he promised a certain things, these certain things to them? And now that they had separated themselves, are they no longer in effect? Have you ever been to a store, you purchase a product, you pick it out, you take it to the register, they're checking you out, and all of a sudden the register goes, it dings, and they say, do you want a warranty with that? Right? I mean, you can buy, you can have a warranty with almost everything out there, from a car to a bag of potato chips, 
there's a warranty that goes along with it. You see, when someone's selling you that, they want you to be sure, or at least to, they want to know that you're satisfied. That if something does go wrong, that there's an assurance that in a moment you will have the help that you need. With this particular product, if it goes wrong, if it falls apart, there is help that's guaranteed. Recently, Jen and I, we used such a warranty. We had a rug that we purchased when we just moved to Boston. Last year, we spilled something on it. We couldn't get it out, so we called the company, and they said, you know what, we'll take care of it. We'll replace it for you. Great. We love warranties that work out so easily. But I'm not always that lucky. You see, back in 2007... I think it was. Yes, 2007, I purchased a certain electronic item from a wonderful store named Circuit City. How many of you remember? How many of you have been back, been back there in the last few days? None of you, because I purchased this product and paid a good amount for the warranty because I know I don't know anything about this product, and I know the chances of me breaking it is pretty high. So I purchased this product, and a few years later, guess what? I do break it. So I call the warranty line, only to find out that Circuit City no longer exists. They've gone bankrupt. They closed out their stores. I'm here at the store to return it or to get it fixed, and they're no longer there. What do you do? You see, the warranty is good only as good as the one who's offering the warranty. If someone makes you a promise, that promise is predicated by their character, will he keep that promise? Will she keep her word? God promises his people through his word. And, this, and scriptures say that he is not man that he can lie. He promises salvation. He promises restoration. He promises redemption. But this promise is good only if the one making the promise is able to keep that promise. God chose the Israelites as his own people, but because of the actions of these people, has God's plans been thwarted for them? Has God's plans been stopped? Is God's plan for your life ever stopped by your actions? God blessed the Israelites and promised that they would be his people, but now all of a sudden you find them cut off. For if God is not faithful to his own people, the Israelites, how much more can we even count on him? Can we count on him to, to deliver on what we heard last week, that nothing can separate us from him? Can we count on that? Can God be trusted to keep his word? That's something that we have to grapple with. Is God still in control when our circumstances feel like he isn't? If God doesn't keep his promises to Israel, will he keep them for you, to you? See, there are moments in our lives where we'll encounter situations and circumstances where we ask those questions. Paul's encountering such a moment here. He's looking at his own people, and he says they're, they're cut off from Christ. And he's asking this question. He's, there's a rhetorical question here. Is God worthy of trust? In the frigid waters around Greenland are countless icebergs, some little, some gigantic. But if you observe them carefully, you'll notice that sometimes these small 
ice bits, these little flows, they flow in one direction, and the massive counterparts, they go in the other. It's a little odd. You see, the explanation is simple. The massive icebergs, they go one direction, but the small ones go the other because the small ones are driven by the surface winds. There isn't much mass to keep them grounded. The small ones are driven by whatever wind comes their way. One day it's going in this direction and the next moment it's going in that. But you see, the difference between the small and the big, the big icebergs are driven by the currents that go underneath. These currents are so strong, it gets these icebergs to the places where it's going. When we face trials and tragedies, it's helpful to see our, our lives as being subject to two of these forces. One, the winds of trial. The winds of whatever is we're facing that day. And the other, God's direction, God's plan, God's sovereignty for our lives. It is a sure movement of God's wise sovereign purposes that is like this current that moves those big icebergs. This is the plan that God has for each of us. Even when life seems chaotic and out of sorts, God's plan is like a current that takes us where we need to go. The surface winds may push you around a little bit, but it is this current that keeps you grounded. His word to you never fails. In verse 6, Paul is writing, but in uh, chapter 9, verse 6, the first part he says, but it's not as though the word of God has failed. Let me say that again. It is not as though the word of God has failed. The resounding answer to all these questions that we've asked till this point, is God worthy of trust? Yes, he is. Is God's promises to Israel broken forever? No, it is not. Is God's word null and void? No, it's not. Paul is saying, he's summarizing that God, his word stands forever. His promise to the people of Israel, his promise to you and to me, they stand forever. Whatever you heard last week, whatever you heard from Romans chapter 8, those promises to you stand forever. You see, the question that Paul is addressing is the integrity of God himself. Can God be charged because the Israelites walked away? Paul's answer is no. God is true to his word. It may seem that God has not delivered what he promised. And so Paul begins by showing us that, no, it is exactly what God had planned. No matter what the circumstance, no matter how chaotic, God is always, he is always in control. His word will never face, he is failed. His word, he is always in control. He's continuing in Romans chapter 9, verse 6 through 8. He says, but it's not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all the children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. A little complicated there, but we'll work through it. Paul's going back again into the history of Israel, and he's working his way through it. The Israelites trace their ethnic and national identity all the way back to Abraham. And to understand what's going on here, it would be beneficial if we took a step back and we looked at Genesis. 
where Abraham is called in Genesis chapter 12. God is talking to Abraham. God is promising certain things to Abraham. And he's saying, now the Lord said to Abraham, he's Abraham at this point, not, just, not Abraham just yet. Go from your country and from your kindred in your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You see, Abraham is considered the patriarch, the founding father, if you may, of Israel. And to this person, God is giving him a promise saying that I will bless you and I will curse those who curse you. And he's reading out this list of blessings and he's saying through you and through your people, all nations of the earth will be blessed. But at this point, when Paul is looking at it, it doesn't look that way. He even goes as far to say one day salvation would come through through your family. You see, Christ a few millennia later would show up. Christ would come out of, the, out of the line of Abraham. And God would bless all people through him. But here Paul is anguishing still about these Israelites that reject Christ. Is this a kink in God's plan? Is there something falling apart here? Is God encountering the unexpected? Every four years comes one of my favorite events. It started this last Friday. The Olympics. In 1984, the Olympics was held in Los Angeles in, in the U.S. And one of their major sponsors was McDonald's. To show their confidence in the U.S. Olympic team, McDonald's came up with this promotion. U.S. wins, you win. Now, it's a clever promotion. If the U.S. won a certain medal, you won. So what they, what they did was customers go, go in, they get these scratch pieces with an Olympic event printed on them. If the Americans won gold, they got a Big Mac. Silver, they got fries. Or bronze, they got a Coke. And so after the events were done, depending on how many medals they got, they would give out that many that many burgers and each location had their own own way of doing things now you see there's i think most of us know when when a corporation says we're giving out free stuff they don't just give out free stuff they've done their research recently jen and i were at jordan's you know exactly what i'm going to talk about they we bought furniture and they said if the socks meet the the yankees right for the pendant, you get it all for free. And I stood there talking to Jenna and said, there's no way they're giving it for free. This must mean that the sock sucks. <laughs> right? They're not going to say, we'll, we'll, they're not going to look at a team and say, this is great. They're going to go for the, They're going to go all the way. And because they're going to go all the way, we're going to give it all for free. Excuse me. <laughs> going to get some angry comments tomorrow. <laughs> but McDonald's had a very similar promotion. They said, depending on how many medals, we'll give you that many Macs or that many Cokes or fries. You see, when they did their research, they looked backwards. They looked at the 1976 Olympics. This is the 84 that they're 
promoting. They looked at the 76 Olympics. There were the Soviets. There were the Germans. All these different countries. And in that year, the U.S. won 94 medals, 34 of them gold. The Soviets, who dominated, they had won 125 medals. And Germany, 90 with 40 gold medals. So they looked at this and said, you know what? Our team hasn't increased that greatly. We're not as great as we want it to be. Chances are we'll only get these many medals. So the 1980 uh, the, uh, the Olympics roll around. The Olympics were in Moscow, and the U.S. decides we're going to sit this one out. Four years pass. The 84 Olympics comes around. It's in Los Angeles. And so the, the Russians and the Germans says, you know what? We're going to sit this one out. That meant bad news. You see, now that the, the Russians and the Germans were not there, the U.S. won a mind-boggling 174 medals. Instead of the 34 goals that they were predicted to win, they won 83. They had doubled the number of goals they received. This spelled bad news. <laughs> McDonald's gave away, had to give away double the food that they had expected. They had a plan. They had drawn it out. They knew exactly what they were going to give out, but they had to double it. There, there was even reports that certain McDonald's locations, they ran out of Big Macs. It was that bad. This was a kink in the McDonald's marketing plan. They made a mistake. This is not what they expected. But a few years later, if you talk to them, they'll say this was the best thing that ever happened to them. You see, as people came in to, to get their free Macs, they bought all this other, other food, and it just it, it grew their company greatly. Was there a kink in the plan? Was there a defect? You see, God's plan for humanity never changes. He has a plan for humanity like we talked about last week, from beginning all the way into eternity. Unlike McDonald's, his, his plan doesn't encounter an unexpected turn. He's not looking back and trying to accommodate all these changes because people are doing what they will do. His plan has always been the same. God's never-changing plan involves all of us. Paul's redirecting his audience perspective, and he says, For not all who are descended from Israel belongs to Israel. In other words, Paul argues that the promises of God always hold true for the true Israel, the spiritual Israel. Paul's making a small distinction here, and it would be good for us to catch it. He's saying the true Israel... He's making a small distinction here. He's saying there is the ethnic Israel, people who call themselves, who are physically descended from Abraham, people who call themselves Israel, and then there is the true Israel. Paul asserts that there is a spiritual Israel, and God's promises to this Israel will never fail. So when God promises that I will make you a great nation, it never fails. In verses 7 through 8, Paul's making the same point a little differently. Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. He says they're all Abraham's, that there are Abraham's physical descendants, his children, and then there are children of promise. There is a spiritual component here. The children of promise, who are they? The children of promise, he's saying, are those that respond to the work through Christ. 
Paul is switching from an ethnic understanding. He's switching from a people, a nationality to say he is looking at it spiritually. And he's saying that line of Israel continues. In this, it's not just the people who are connected to Israel, but spiritually connected because to them before time even began. There are people who have responded to God's grace. God's people are not bound by ethnicity or by activity. They are bound because he chooses them and they respond to him. We are all part of that Israel. We are all part of that, that spiritual family. We are that true Israel. We are the children of promise. God chooses us. We respond to his grace. We respond to what Christ has done on that cross. The people of Israel possessed all of God's blessings. They were given his blessings. His favor was poured out on them. They were given his law. But Paul is arguing that just by receiving the law, just by possessing the law, the law was no substitute for responding to grace. One can know of God's work and yet not respond to it. One can analyze his grace, ponder on his mercy, scrutinize his work. Paul says this is of no use. Knowing of God's grace is no substitute to responding to his grace. Let me say that once more. Just merely knowing of what God has done is no substitute to accepting it, to responding to it. You see, Israel knew of what God had done, but they refused to accept it. They refused to respond to it. Paul's making it clear that his plan, God's plan, involves all people. We are that true Israel. His plan doesn't change over time. God has always been in control. His plan was for all mankind. I'm going to fast forward when God chooses his people. He elects them based on who he is and not their qualifications. In Romans 9, that chapter 9 verse through 13, he says, For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, had done neither good nor bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of who called them. She was told, the old will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Paul, in these verses, he's writing something specific. He's writing something unique. You have no qualifications by which you were called. When you apply for a job, that's the first thing they look at. When you apply to a certain social, a social institution, a club, or whatever it is, They're looking at what do you bring to the table. But Paul is saying when he looks, when God looks at you, he is not looking at your qualification. He is not looking at your favorables. He is not looking at what you bring to the table. Instead, he is saying it is only dependent on the one who calls. It's dependent on what he did and not your work. The sovereignty of God. Is displayed in 9.16. So then it dis- depends. Not on human will or exertion. But on God who has mercy. 
Paul is saying it's not based on you. It's based on God who has mercy on you. That's where the sovereignty of God comes into place. His sovereignty is displayed in 925 through 26. Those who were not my people, I will call my people. And who, her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called the sons of the living God. Because God is in control, he has a plan for us. He draws us to him. As the worship team comes up, because God is in control, what good is it to you and to me? You see, because God is in control, because he is sovereign, he draws me to him. There's nothing that I could do, nothing that I could accomplish that could get me the salvation. But God is saying, because of me, I draw all men to me. And next he's saying, because God is in control, God, you are in good hands. Because God is in control, my future is secure in his hands. God's word will not fail. And all the promises that he has given you will tr prove true for you. Even in the midst of the worst suffering. If God is in control, whatever you're facing, there is a reason for it. He does not let you go through anything without a reason to utilize it. The work which God began... The work which God planned, the work which God established, He will take it to the end. He will accomplish it in each and every one of you because He is in control. There are moments in our Christian walk where we're going to ask, God, does my life make sense? Does what I'm going through make sense in your overall picture? Am I a part of something bigger? Or am I here enduring what I have to endure? God is in control. God is in control. His word will never fail. God is in control. His plans are everlasting. And because he's in control, we are in good hands. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the words of Paul. We thank you that you are sovereign. You are God. And you draw us to you. Lord, we have nothing to display. We have nothing of worth. And the only reason we are here today is because of what Christ did on that cross. Lord, I pray for each of us here. Lord, the many of us who are burdened with not knowing what's happening, with the worry that comes along that life presents to us, Lord, I pray that you would ease their burdens. You would ease our cries to know that you are always in control. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.